Our text for meditation this Epiphany Sunday is our Gospel reading. Hear the word of our Lord from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. And now grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Have you ever searched out how your ancestors lived? It certainly appears that it was harder in some senses, at least as far as lifestyle was concerned. People had to get around without GPS, they had to learn and communicate without the internet, there were no vacuums or dishwashers, and certainly they had to be wiser with their money. But on the other hand, their culture was vastly superior to ours. It is clear that there was more community, less atomization, and morality was stronger due to the greater presence of Christian social capital. With this, while we recognize that it must have meant harder work and more danger, we think of the past and get a sort of adjacent nostalgia for a world we never got to experience. Let's face it, times were better back then, and the people who lived in those times progressively made things worse until we found ourselves in the mire of degeneracy that drowns us today. In today's cultural decay, it is tempting to wonder this about religion as well. Many a young man today sees horrors beyond our ancestors' comprehension, especially in the world of religion. He sees the abominable, multicolored flag of the West being hung outside of so many churches. He sees his own people indoctrinated with self-hatred. And he has great difficulty having like-minded friends, let alone a woman, to call his own. The vast majority of churches in this age of dissipation respond in one of two ways to his plight. First, they might shrug and tell him he ought to whip up a life for himself on his own strength. 
bootstrapping. They have no inclination nor desire to give him any assistance. But if he insists, then the churches condemn him and attack him for any number of the forbidden isms of our age. Oh, he seems to hate women the way he asks for help finding a girl with good character. Oh my, he must be one of those darned racists the way he rejects all the social teachings but doesn't reject his heritage. Goodness, goodness gracious, is he some sort of fascist that he wants care for himself and his loved ones over foreigners? You'll hear these lines from countless denominational bodies, theologians, and pastors who are terrified to offer anything to young men. In effect, they have removed their vacancy signs and said, you're not welcome here, go find some other place. Where once churches were actively beneficial to their communities, and this included single men, now they are openly antagonistic to them, obsessed with loving the outsider over the faithful, the sinner over the saint, the enemies of God more than his poor sheep. Having received this malicious signal quite clearly, many young men have opted for paganism. Old paganism, as in the reconstructed religion of their very distant ancestors. Whether they would admit it or not, the thinking goes that since times were better in the past, perhaps it was Christianity that started the downward slide to where we are today. Perhaps embracing the quote-unquote old gods, as they call them, would bring about a better morality, better society, and so forth. Most of the guys who take this option don't actually believe that their gods exist. To the contrary, they end up being a mask for repackaged Nietzsche, strength-based morality, and more. The point for them is the product of what they believe to be better times, not the cause. And they put the cart before the horse, thinking that this will bring the desired result. But as much as I might fault them for that, after all, neo-paganism has by and large failed to produce anything they want, and it too has succumbed to subversion, the fact of the matter is that the church failed to offer them anything other than salvation, if that. We really saw hurting people and told them the gospel ought to suffice and they should shut up. Imagine doing that to someone who was just hit by a car. Oh, your legs are broken? Sounds like a you problem. But let me tell you about Jesus so you quit complaining about your injury. Clearly, Christian organizations must repent of this blatant, reality-denying Gnosticism. The church must repent, as this unwillingness to actually fight the culture war and care for this segment of society is truly a betrayal of Christ, who has instructed his bride to reach out to all in evangelism, with few methods to be left untouched. But the matter of neo-paganism's appeal must be addressed at the same time, especially with the treasures of the word given to us for this epiphany. So in the spirit of honest engagement, I decided to revisit some of my ancestry and discuss it in contrast to the central thesis of the neo-pagan, that we should go back to some imagined 
old ways. Let's take a look at my ancestors. You see, I have a French-Germanic Merovingian phenotype. There's a little Anglo-Saxon there as well, but as far as I've learned and studied, my features and ancestry are primarily Frankish. I know it sounds a little bit silly, as the French are a mix of Roman, Saxon, Germanic, and Celtic peoples, making them seem like one big bottlenecked mix. But it's the best way I can put it. I digress. That's my ballpark lineage. So my ancestors are Francs, leading me to ask what exactly Frankish paganism was like. Most scholars believe there was a parallel to Germanic paganism, as they practiced the kind of high places worship that their fellow barbarians preferred, with altars and forests and glens and hills. And they were known by Tacitus the historian to parade statues on carts pulled by cows. In fact, they really liked cows and bulls to the point that the founder of their primary dynasty, Merovech, was said to have been fathered by a mer-cow with five horns called the Quinitar. Yes, the legend really speculates that Merovech, the closest thing the Francs had to a King Arthur, was a man speculated to have been sired by a bull-slash-fish hybrid. They also had a thing for bees, or cicadas, as they buried King Shilderic I with about 300 jewel-encrusted golden bees. Supposedly, they engaged in human sacrifice, drowning slaves in bogs, but I'm a bit skeptical of that claim, as it sounds just a bit too druidic in practice. So, um, yeah, not much to go off of for returning to the old ways. But how about the quote-unquote old gods and their particular cosmology? Well, it is actually a mystery as to what the Francs really, truly believed when they were pagans. One group, called Theofrancisc Alcido, purporting to present a reconstructed Frankish paganism to the world, basically borrows from the Roman and Germanic pagan pantheons and makes up new names for their divinities. From their website, the gods, quote, may be Germanic, Gallic, or Roman in origin, sometimes unknown. Some may be of a later attestation being perceived as qualitatively Frankish in particular. The beings listed in the next pages are also reconstructed from rationalized evidence found throughout the Frankish territory, with the purpose of offering to them cultus in this age, end quote. So they made most of it up. At best, they read about Germanic paganism, slapped on some Frankish-sounding names, and called it a day. This is made even more goofy by the fact that we have almost no clue how their original language worked. If I were to quote-unquote return to the old ways, or return to the old gods, so to speak, then I would be completely lost. There is no starting point for it, and those trying to claim they have figured it out are deluding themselves. 
Someone might say that I ought to go off the poetic and prose Eddas based on the speculation that the Francs took from that, but there are two problems there. For one, the source material for the Eddas is uncertain already. But more importantly, the neo-pagans are saying I should go to the religion of my ancestors, and the Eddas are not a product of my ancestors. It is from someone else's ancestors. It is of no value for returning to anything for me. It honestly seems that the pagan ancestors in my heritage were just floating there. Certainly it isn't exactly the case, but they seemed to just be waiting around until Christianity was brought to them. They saw no value in preserving the traditions of Frankish paganism, as our current ignorance of their old religion is precisely caused by them not bothering to teach anything about it. They abandoned paganism for Christ and never looked back. It is for this reason that France is called the eldest daughter of the church. If the Francs did not care to preserve their old doctrines, and since they left it all for Christ, then the message from my ancestors is clear. There is nothing there for you in the old ways, my son. Stay with Christ. Therefore I will honor my ancestors in obedience to the fourth commandment, and stay the course. St. Gregory of Tours tells us about how their conversion started. Clovis I, the first king of all Francs, and the one who established the true Merovingian dynasty, was married to a Burgundian princess named Clotilda. Clotilda was a Nicene Christian, and remained so despite her husband being pagan, and her fellow Gauls being Arian heretics. The two would bicker as the king did not want his sons baptized, but his wife would have them baptized in secret, and arguments would arise. Clovis argued that his gods would help him. But Clotilda made it clear that idols of stone and metal would do nothing for him. Sounds like a tumultuous marriage, to be certain. But the arguments between husband and wife were finally ended when God stepped in at the Battle of Tolbiac, when the tide of war began to turn against Clovis and his army, when the Alemanni, enemy of the Francs, began to have the upper hand, he finally called upon Christ, quote, Jesus Christ, whom Clotilda asserts to be the son of the living God, who art said to give aid to those in distress, and to bestow victory on those who hope in thee. I beseech the glory of thy aid with the vow that if thou wilt grant me victory over these enemies, and I shall know that power which she says that people dedicated in thy name have had from thee, I will believe in thee and be baptized in thy name. For I have invoked my own gods, but as I find they have withdrawn from aiding me, and therefore I believe that they possess no power, since they do not help those who obey them. I now call upon thee. I desire to believe thee, only let me be rescued from my adversaries. Shortly after he prayed this, the leader of the opposing army, the Alamani, was killed by an unseen warrior, 
and thus Clovis was convinced. He was baptized, and the Francs shortly thereafter converted along with him, creating a truly Christian kingdom. Now there is a part of me that might say that in our gospel reading for today, the Magi were wiser than Clovis I. They came to Christ before Jesus had done anything for them, unlike Clovis, who indeed became a Christian after God had demonstrated his power. But to be fair to the man, the Magi had seen the star. God had revealed to them that the king of the Jews, the true savior of the entire world, was to be born somewhere in Judea. They sought him knowing what he would do, giving him gold for a king, frankincense for a god, and myrrh for somebody who would die. They knew he would die for them. They abandoned their paganism for the Christ child who revealed himself in that moment to us Gentiles. They were given a distinct advantage, while Clovis had to be shown the delivering power of Christ, where he could see very clearly that if Christ can deliver him from his enemies, the Alemanni, and help him to unite all of the Francs, then indeed he could save his soul too, and deliver him from sin, death, and the devil. So I won't judge the king of my ancestors, dear Clovis. He certainly shows us in history that Jesus Christ truly does interfere in this world to save souls, to save us Gentiles. So much so that boughs were broken off of the tree of Israel that we might be grafted on. And I rejoice to see that my ancestors did so with enthusiasm. But that too should include excitement for young men today. If God was willing to intervene in the lives of these pagan magi, traditionally known in the church as Melchior, Balthazar, and Caspar, if God was willing to show them what he would do for them, and if, as history attests, God was willing to deliver Clovis from terrible things happening to him and his people, then indeed the scriptures are vindicated which say that God gives us our daily bread, that God delivers us from our adversaries, that he sends angels to assist and help and deliver us every day. Dear young men, Christ does offer you things. He offers us salvation first, eternal life in his name, that all who believe and are baptized will be saved. Then he invites you into a relationship where he promises to help you. He promises, yes, that one day he shall return to judge the living and the dead, but even in this life, he says, come, take up your cross, follow me. Walk with me, young man. I will help you. I'm going to guide you. I am going to bless you. And while many churches are busy stabbing you in the back, clearly they don't worship Christ. 
They seem to be worshipping those old gods that do nothing for people, as Clovis's old gods did nothing for him. You can safely ignore churches and theologians and pastors that act like that. Truly, God does give us our daily bread, and we ought to be thankful. Truly, God is involved with us, and we should look at him with gratitude, with trust. And, at least as far as the catacomb synod has plans for, we should be with churches that say, As my God has helped you, so do I also wish to help you. May all Christian churches see that this is how God operates and love these young men, loving their neighbors as themselves from this day forward and until our Lord Christ returns. Now the peace of God which surpasses all understanding guards your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.